Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod. The podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Maya Bandai. Policy Forum Pod is produced here at Crawford School, the region's leading graduate policy school. And if you wanted to find out more about it, head to crawford.anu.edu.au. So today we're talking about grand challenges. And here at the ANU, there is this big competition called the ANU Grand Challenges Scheme. Now, this scheme is one where the ANU will invest into big ideas, which are aiming to solve some of the world's most important and intractable problems. So here with me today to talk about these grand challenges is Bob Cotton. Hi, Bob. Hi, good morning, Maya, and how are you? I'm good, thank you. So, Bob, what has been one of your grandest challenges? Been quite a few in a lifetime, Maya, but a recent one as a result of me forming a new relationship is my partner and I have both had to sell our properties. I sold mine earlier this year, living there for 41 years. And the great challenge for me was actually getting rid of a whole lot of books which I'd accumulated over many years. My children said, if you're not reading them, Dad, uh, why are you keeping them? So sadly, I had to let almost all of them go. That's such a shame. I do love my books. I think one of my biggest and grandest challenges at the moment is trying to get off Netflix. I'm currently watching Suits, which is a highly addictive show, and trying to study at the same time does not go well for me. So the grand challenge we're talking about today is climate change. And in the next two decades, two-thirds of the world's energy growth will happen in the Asia-Pacific. Now, this is going to have huge implications for decarbonisation. And what we're going to be talking about today is how Australia can play a role in creating a carbon-free future. I'm delighted today to be able to introduce our three guests, uh, Dr Emma Eisbett, uh, Dr Paul Burke and Dr Matt Stocks, all of the ANU. Emma is a Senior Research Fellow at the Centre for Social Research and Methods and her research focuses on economic globalisation, environmental policy, developing countries and political economy. We could spend a whole session just with you, I think, Emma. Anyway, you're most welcome. And Paul, welcome to you, uh, a Fellow at the Crawford School here. As an economist, you focus on energy, the environment, transport and developing countries, particularly in the Asia-Pacific region and also on policies to promote zero-carbon energy in the Asia-Pacific region, and last but by no means least, Australia's energy transition. You've got a busy agenda too. And finally, Matt Stocks, fellow at the Research School of Engineering, with more than 20 years of research and development experience in renewable energy and photovoltaics, and was a member of a team awarded a Eureka Prize for their research on renewable energy in Australia. Welcome to you, Matt. So delighted to have all three of you here. So Emma, Paul and Matt are all key team members of the ANU Energy Change Institute's Grand Challenge Project. And this project is about zero carbon energy for the Asia Pacific. The team were recently announced the winners of the Grand Challenges scheme and we're here today to pick their brains about renewable energy and zero carbon energy in the Asia Pacific and what that means for our future. 
But before we dive into the discussion, just a reminder that we're really keen to hear your thoughts on any of our podcasts. So please reach out to us on Twitter, where we are Apps Policy Forum, or on Facebook, Asia Pacific Policy Society, or just send us an email to podcast at policyforum.net. Make sure you stick around after the main discussion, and we'll talk about some of your comments from our podcast and our Policy Forum articles. So let's just get into it. So welcome, Emma, Paul, and Matt. So congratulations on winning the ANU Grand Challenges scheme. It's a huge achievement. Thanks, Maya. So with this win, you'll be receiving $10 million in research funding, which is huge. So could you tell us a bit more about your research project and why it is so important? Perhaps, Paul, we want to start? Thanks very much, Maya. One of the biggest challenges the world faces is climate change and uh, Global emissions are increasing quickly. The world set a new record for global emissions last year from the energy sector and use of natural gas and oil is increasing quickly. Our vision is to try to do the work to underpin a new energy future for the Asia-Pacific and for Australia's contribution to a zero-carbon energy future in the region. Currently, Australia is a large exporter of coal and natural gas. Our Work is trying to move Australia towards a new model for energy exports to zero carbon energy exports. It's such a big thing. And Emma, what does this project mean for you? It means a lot of things. Obviously, I think Paul's, you know, ticked a lot of the big boxes. But for me, one of the most exciting things is that a lot of this renewable energy development is happening in areas where there's a lot of native title and exclusive native title, which means that this industry, um, particularly if done right, has the potential to really make a difference for sustainable development of some of the most poor and marginalised people in our own country. And Matt, why are you excited about this project? The way that we're managing to bring people across the university together to to work on this, um, one of the aspects of being an engineer is generally you chat to engineers and you think about technology and focus in that space. And one of the, this thing, the things that this project opens up is that we can think about not just the the technologies, but also the policies and the frameworks which help to deliver this uh, transition that we're going to see over the coming decades. Emma, I wanted to just shift it a bit and ask about the Paris Agreement. 195 countries signed up to it, which is pretty fabulous, given the way these things work. Uh, but certainly, I guess we hear a lot about it. There's a lot of talk. But what are those countries who've signed up to the Paris Agreement? What are they actually doing to implement policies? I mean, a lot of talk about the policies. Uh, what are countries actually doing to implement their commitments to the Paris Agreement? So, Paul, you first, then maybe Emma. Yeah, a, a big change over recent years has been the dramatic reduction in the cost of renewables. So these days it makes sense for countries to start to adopt solar and wind energy technologies, uh, even putting aside Paris obligations, although, of course, the climate change perspective and obligations are very important. Uh, one example is India, which has uh, moved ahead very quickly in terms of large-scale projects for solar and also for wind as well. And some other countries in the region, for example, Indonesia, uh, have ambitious uh, renewables uptake policies. Progress is not quite as quick in Indonesia's case as it is in India. But a lot of countries in the region are trying to and starting to move towards uh, shifting their economies away from reliance on coal and increasingly towards starting to adopt solar and wind. Uh, And one of the advantages that this region has is the fact that we are seeing growth. 
So rather than having to turn something off in order to put more renewables into the system, the advantage is that we can look to renewables being the solution to that energy growth. So the energy growth can be achieved in in a carbon-free way. So I think one of the big transformations that I noticed, given my globalisation research, is that increasingly we're seeing cross-border electricity trades. So production is happening in one country and um, with the advances in technology, meaning that we can transport electricity relatively efficiently over large distances, you're actually seeing export to neighbouring countries. And um, that has huge implications. It also helps the uptake of renewables because you can sort of offset some of the natural variability associated with things like wind and solar radiation by having connected networks across countries. So just going back to the Paris Agreement, it's aimed to keep global temperatures below two degrees. But do we actually have any chance of meeting that target? Well, it would be hard work. I'm not a climate scientist, but my understanding is that we would really need to act very quickly to limit global warming to two degrees Celsius. But... um, the imperative is there to do so. If we don't, then some uh, some assessments indicate that we're on track for perhaps three degrees in total global warming this century alone, and then there's next century as well. Uh, so we do need to get moving. Currently, the Paris commitments do not align with restricting global warming to two degrees Celsius. Analysis suggests that the commitments themselves would put us on a path for about three degrees warming. Uh, so really, we need to be moving beyond those commitments and to be starting to step up ambition. The good news is from the energy sector that the technologies are now really moving ahead to allow us to do that. Reducing emissions in some other sectors like agriculture at currently is more challenging, but technology is also moving in that area in terms of uh, the production of meat in lab- laboratories and things. That might be a, a good topic for a future podcast, I think. But uh, I, I think that... Definitely in terms of the Paris Agreement, it's more and more moving towards countries acting because the the energy transition is in their own interests, moving towards a model which can give clean and also cheap energy domestically and while also helping to meet Paris emissions reduction commitments. It's going to bring us back to Australia, if I might, and I guess ask all three of you this – whether you think Australia is on course to meet its Paris targets. There seems to be a fair bit of debate about it. But to generalise that, what, do we, what are we going to need to, from industry and from government to help move to the future that you're talking about? So Australia is very much on track at the moment in terms of the rate that we're installing renewables. So if we continue to install renewables at the rate which we are at the moment, over 2018, 2019, 2020, then by 2025, we will have reduced enough emissions in the electricity sector to meet our entire Paris targets. Not just the bit for electricity, but Australia's entire, the entire commitment. The entire commitment. Yeah. Um, but that does need some sort of framework to, to push that forward. Um, Australia is in the difficult position that we're not growing our electricity needs. And so in order to add renewables, we need to switch something else off. And therefore, we have a tension in the system around vested interests and, and other players going, is this something I really want to do at the moment? Um, but the industry is ready and the economics is now the case that we can can push towards hitting our Paris targets just in the electricity sector alone. I would like to add from a political economy perspective that some of what we see in the Australian setting is absolutely, as Matt said, um, vested interests. But there's a lot of research showing that it's exactly when industries are under threat from other places, like a more competitive um, alternative industry, perhaps from overseas, 
in this case because of the renewables, that they do really ramp up um, their their lobbying effort to try and save themselves. I think that's what we're in the throes of currently in Australia. And Australia doesn't currently really have a climate policy instrument that's working. I mean, we have the renewable energy target that lasts until 2020, so only a couple of years in the future. Uh, We removed our carbon pricing instrument this year in the domestic policy scene. We've had a lot of discussion about the NEG, the National Energy Guarantee, which the government has now pulled from the table. So beyond 2020, it's not clear what policy instrument will be used, if any, to reduce emissions in the electricity sector and also in other sectors as well. Uh, How can we bring agriculture into the emissions reduction effort? Uh, How about industry? So so currently at the moment, the the renewables energy sector is moving very quickly, but the government is somewhat behind. And our policy frameworks, certainly beyond 2020, are not in place for us to make sure that we're rapidly decarbonising. And I assume that some of your research focus is designed to try and help us bridge that gap, move that forward? Well, there's a lot of research around ANU on policy mechanisms for decarbonising. So, for example, the use of an emissions trading scheme. They can be designed in many different ways um, or uh, renewable energy targets and similar types of mechanisms for either reducing emissions or bringing renewables into the system at a more rapid rate than they would come on otherwise. Uh, So, yeah, there's a lot of work in that area. With our Grand Challenge work, we're, we're... sort of turning the focus more to the export side. Australia is, our domestic emissions are important, but, you know, we're a huge exporter of emissions embodied in coal and natural gas. Uh, We're the world's largest exporter of coal. And as of next year, the world's largest exporter of natural gas. So our export uh, emission, our exported emissions are, are really rather large. And what Australia does in this area really matters. Uh, So that's our grand challenge focus is how we can switch our energy export model from coal and natural gas to something new. Paul's talked a bit about our existing export structure, but we haven't talked yet about what we're going to switch that to. And that is a really exciting and positive story. Okay. So um, one way is, as I mentioned earlier, simply plugging ourselves in to the rest of Asia via Java, for example, using a high voltage DC cable. Another mechanism is to essentially export embedded zero carbon energy. So um, Paul talked about how our export footprint carbon-wise is actually much bigger than Australia's domestic one. One of the um, ways in which we export essentially a lot of um, implicit carbon emissions is through our iron ore exports. So we are easily the world's biggest iron ore exporter. And I think um, one of our team members did the calculation It's around, I think, the emissions arising elsewhere in the world from people refining our iron ore into steel are several multiples of Australia's entire domestic electricity sector emissions. So one of the things we're excited about in the Grand Challenge is looking at developing the technologies that could um, see iron ore reduced in Australia, value-adding, using zero-carbon energy and turning that into a hundreds of billions of dollars worth of steel exports. Well, perhaps we to ask, Amber, that you're the sort of leaders understand it of, as you described earlier, this transdisciplinary search. So you've got three distinct bodies of knowledge here, in a way, and you're the importance of bringing all that together in the project that you put forward. 
Yeah, so I should say that Ken Baldwin is very clearly the the leader of the overall Grand Challenge, but it is indeed my job to try and work um, across all the disciplines and get us talking to each other and learning from each other. And I really enjoy that job. It's a natural fit for me because I have an undergraduate degree in chemical engineering, a Master of Environmental Change Management and a PhD in economics. So I sort of am living, breathing interdisciplinarity. You're sort of three in one, aren't (laughs) you? (laughs) Just before I pass over to Maya, I just wanted to ask from your perspective what we've been talking about so far, a bit of a comment on the Australian community, sort of broadly defined. How do you think they are sensing this debate, this issue, climate change and so on? Thank you for asking that question. So, I mean, I consider myself one of those um, members of the community and I was actually pretty depressed before I joined this team because it seemed such a sort of negative, um, all about the losers from this transition. But through working across disciplines and particularly all the exciting technological developments, I have a much more positive view and I think that's one thing we'd really like to get out there is this this could be a really positive change across Australia. And of course, there are always losers in certain regions, but the gains are so big that it should be very easy to construct policies and, and manage the transition in a way that those losers are well and truly compensated. Now, Matt and Paul, you've both mentioned the fact that we need robust policy and legal frameworks. But what exactly does this look like? What sort of policies and legal frameworks do we need for this sort of export industry to be rolled out and to be put in place? Um, So that's the challenge for us. That's what we're setting out to try and work out is what are the barriers and what are the opportunities and what are the mechanisms for us to enable it. Um, So at the moment, electricity trade hasn't really occurred very much in Asia. It's relatively weakly linked. Um, you can look to the models of Europe where there's a very strong interconnected network and a lot of the rules and structures around how that works efficiently have been developed and there's an opportunity to look to those to how we might look to connect Australia into into Asia and for Asia to strengthen its own um, interconnectedness. Do you think that the Asia-Pacific region will have a united approach to this sort of thing? They're working on it. So, so uh, ASEAN has been working on interconnecting their networks better. There's, there's a real economic benefit in joining regions together. So if you're trying to manage one country, you, you're trying to make sure you can meet the most extreme cases of supply and demand within that region. If you can average it across multiple countries, then you can share the, the peaks and, and the troughs in the system and the, the entire system works more economically and, and everyone recognises the benefits for that. The, the challenge is working through the policies and the frameworks which enable that to happen. Australia and Indonesia have uh, quite a bit of trade already, but much less than than we should given our proximity and the, the large size of the Indonesian market as well. We have a lot of tourists going to Bali um, and other trade as well, the meat trade as well. But uh, really, we're interested in looking at the framework for a new type of trade, and that's electricity trade between the two countries. And it's a very ambitious idea. There's a big trench between the two countries. Um, Indonesia is uh, is often keen on national sovereignty and self-sufficiency. If they could acquire electricity that is zero emissions at their end uh, and our end as well, actually, and also low cost to to Indonesia for importing, then it's of great advantage to them. But really what is needed is some type of agreement and and that's what we're looking at in this grand challenge. And do you think that's possible? Oh, everything's possible, I think, and the technology is there. So it's up to us humans to set the frameworks for getting it to happen.
And Emma, what are your, what's your take on this? So I just wanted to make a plug, actually. I'm working with two of our very brilliant uh, young legal scholars on the team right this week uh, to produce out one of the first position papers out of the Interim Grand Challenge, and that is exactly an assessment of the existing public international law in terms of its ability to support exactly the sort of private investment in the electricity infrastructure as well as this cross-border trade. So that will be up on the ECI website definitely within a month. Mm, so there's a lot of different factors to think about. And obviously, this is such a big scale project and it's called Grand Challenges for a reason. So what do you think will be the greatest challenges to achieving this zero carbon energy future? So I think it all depends on which hat you wear. Um, as a technologist, um, I see the technology is easy now. Um, renewables have got to the point where the, the economics are really strong. We know how to move electricity long distance. It's then around what are the policies and, and frameworks that enable us to um, ensure that that actually gets gets developed and, and delivered. Electricity is the easy part. Where it gets interesting then is these other um, technical challenges around can we develop uh, this technique for doing the iron ore reduction with electricity rather than using coking coal. Um, so there's a real opportunity there for that to be delivered, but it's going to need a willingness from companies to invest, and they're only going to be willing to invest if they can see a clear horizon where the carbon in steel is bad, that there really is a penalty associated with that. And that probably is still some distance off. So that's a challenge on the technolo technological side. But what about, you know, the environmental, the social or the policy side? So, so from my perspective, I think the general global trend towards nationalism is surely the biggest threat. So, for example, we would love to export all this zero carbon steel. But meanwhile, the US and China are already in a trade war in all about protecting their national steel industries. So I think that is, from my view, the biggest challenge. I think there are definitely challenges on the technology side. So, for example, hydrogen. Hydrogen, uh, if it can be produced using zero carbon energy here in Australia, then the key thing is, can it be done cheaply so that it compete, can compete with other energy types around the world? So that's one challenge. But on the policy side, I think there are a lot of challenges as well. The incumbents uh, are big players and there's lots of money involved. And if you look across countries in the region, there are some policies that are in place which really do disadvantage renewables. Uh, so there are challenges from the policy side in terms of making a, a level playing field for renewables so that these new technologies can come in and compete well. So just as one example on that, uh, energy subsidies, so subsidies for production of fossil fuels and also su subsidies for consuming fossil fuels and on-grid electricity as well can make it very difficult for renewables to compete um, on a level playing field. Some other policies include regulatory barriers that prevent investors from investing in the solar industry in the Asia-Pacific. Uh, so I think on the policy side, there's a lot of work that can be done to, to make the environment much more attractive for a zero carbon transition. Paul, I was just going to uh, maybe, excuse my language, get down and dirty here uh, and focus a bit on the new renewable export industry and the current power politically and otherwise of the coal industry. How is your new export, renewable export in, uh, export industry for Australia going to fare against that sort of uh, political and economic power in the country? Well, at the end of the day, in economics, the winner should be the one that is the better product and is cheaper. Uh, so coal, interestingly, global coal consumption has actually reduced over the last couple of years. That's not true for oil or for natural gas. Uh, if... There are better products that come along, then they will, will be able to outcompete coal. 
And really, the challenge for Australia is to start to look for a, for a vision and a future beyond coal. Some regions, for example, the Latrobe Valley in Victoria, uh, they've had a wonderful history of providing electricity for Australia using brown coal and made a, an amazing contribution to Australia's development. But the future might not look like the past and a key challenge for governments and communities as well is to look for these new opportunities and to take the best opportunities that are coming along. Matt and Emma, you'd like to comment on this one? Yeah, that's political economy always makes me smile. I um, thought it might. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, one of- Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. The things you learn when studying political economy is that, um, you know, power follows the money and, and lobby effort is basically pretty proportional to the amount of extra profit that can be made. That is very hard um, to to challenge if you don't have money. And so one of the exciting things is as the renewables industry and all these alternative zero carbon industries uh, get bigger, they will actually provide something of a counterweight to the money from the sort of incumbent coal industry. So it's quite a big coal lobby. Do you think that'll be like a renewable lobby in the future? Most industries have lobbies, so yeah. I'm sure and there will be. There already is. The, the industry is developing quite quickly in Australia and our renewable energy target and the progress in technologies are to thank for that. So there is a renewables lobby already and one that's growing. Yeah. Like to come so, on this one? so I think there's going to be a strong demand pull from overseas, and I think that helps to break that um, that, that barrier for uh, in terms of overcoming coal. Um, countries like Japan and Korea um, see that they have very high energy um, usage and they have a very high population density. And one of the challenges with renewables is it's a low density technology. It, you need large amounts of space in order to produce large amounts of power. And so countries like Japan and Korea see hydrogen and the import of some sorts of synthetic fuels as the opportunity for them to be able to access renewable energy that has been developed in other countries. Um, So there's definitely strong work being looked at developing the hydrogen energy in Australia because of the pull, particularly from Japan. Um, And therefore, that's what's going to help to overcome the barrier of um, the the coal industry resistance within Australia is that we're going to be able to just look to external markets where there is a much stronger pull for a low-carbon product. And the coal industry is huge, but are there any signs that fossil fuel companies are looking to transition to renewables themselves? Um, so, so not as much as there was historically. So if you look at the early development of the solar industry, um, every one of the major companies in the solar field was had a fossil fuel company as, as the leading name. It was BP, it was Exxon, it was um, a, a range of companies like Shell, um, who for some reason chose to exit that. I think they um, perceived that that was too far away and that they weren't particularly interested in the, the sort of timeframes that things were going to happen in. Um, and I think what we've moved to now is that we don't need it to be driven by those deep pockets, um, that the industry has reached a scale that it can be self-funding and manage its own growth. Um, and the, the fossil fuel companies really are, are, are looking at shrinking in size. 
um, any of the coal companies that are listed uh, internationally are crashing in terms of their their share price because the demand for coal is is also um, crashing. So I think the change doesn't need those companies to come on board. Um, we really are looking at the demand pull is what's going to drive the growth. Thank you. I was going to ask about how you see this export industry, which you're keen to have, and we are. How does that impact on our future trade relationships? Fascinating. You've mentioned Japan, Korea, uh, Indonesia. I have to ask about the United States and I have to ask about China. Uh, how do you see it playing out? So, I mean, I guess the, the US in this particular, correct me if I'm wrong, um, gentlemen, particular industry we don't have particularly strong um, trade links with and I don't think we're plugging a DC cable all the way across the Pacific to California and they have plenty of their own sunshine. But uh, China is obviously a very important consideration and China certainly has ambitions as part of the One Belt, One Road initiative for an Asian supergrid. And so one of the things we will be researching is you know, how can our ambitions fit in with that? Can they complement, be complementary or will they be competing? Um, so I think the other interesting one is going to be these value-added products. So whether it be synthetic fuels produced from renewable hydrogen, whether it's the reduction of iron ore and producing green um, steel, um, there are definitely challenges around the industries that exist today and, and the barriers that they're going to put forward in terms of us growing these industries. So um, as Emma mentioned, China has a very large steel industry. They're going to want to continue to produce that steel in China, ideally, if they can. Um, and they have a centralised government system which enables them to basically make decisions um, at the drop of the hat. I remember uh, 10 years ago that I was trying to source silicon for a um, photovoltaic manufacturing facility that we were developing. And I visited a site in, in Mongolia and there was a multiple halls full of people, mostly Chinese women, measuring broken silicon wafers to try and grade them into different categories. Um, and the next time I visited, 12 months later, the halls were empty. Um, and the decision was that silicon is going to be manufactured in China and we're not going to import scrap from the US. And at the drop of a hat, the entire policy changes. And so you can see that decisions that are made centrally in, in China can heavily influence how well we can mm. um, develop these sorts of industries. Uh, do you see this having an application for our close neighbours in the Pacific? We often take a bit of a sense of responsibility with our Pacific neighbours. Do you think this is going to work for them too? I think it's an excellent question. I'm not sure if, if Paul or Matt have answers. Um, I mean... One of the things that we're looking at is really sort of large scale, as you can tell. And so that sort of large scale has high fixed costs. It's not really um, all that applicable to very small markets. Um, so, But I do think there's plenty of other exciting developments in small scale and distributed renewables um, that, other, that are going on in other parts of the ANU, indeed, at the Crawford School. The advantage the Pacific Islands have is uh, they are very sunny. So solar power <laughs> is, is a good thing for them. And there are and lots of opportunities. And, and windy as well. So there are lots of opportunities in the Pacific for switching to zero carbon energy. On Australia and our export potential, our, our advantage is our close proximity to Asia. And I think just a really key point is just how much energy demand will grow in the region over coming decades. For example, in Indonesia, Electricity consumption is less than one third of the global average and is growing quite quickly. The, the quantities we're talking about are very large and on the demand side. So there's lots of opportunities for Australia throughout Asia. So we're talking all about 
exporting energy. But without sound, without going way too technical, because I have no idea, how exactly do we export and transport this renewable energy? I think, Emma, you mentioned a DC cable, but what exactly is this in very simple terms? Um, so, so there's a range of options that we're looking at within um, this project. So the easy one in some ways is to just use a big cable. So high voltage DC is where you run the um, voltage of the particular cable at very, very high voltage, roughly a million volts. And as a result of that, you can pass a lot of power with very low current. And so that means you can move electricity very long distances with very little loss. Um, So the most obvious first step in Australia's context is that for us to connect through to Indonesia and then to connect through into the rest of Asia. Um, at quite large scale in terms of electricity export. We then have um, other routes around exporting high energy products. Um, And that's either that they have a high energy value or they have a high amount of energy embodied in the product. So in terms of the um, things like using hydrogen that's generated from renewable electricity, and then we can either directly export that hydrogen as a fuel or we can make synthetic fuels, methanes and and more complex um, uh, petrochemicals based on that initial hydrogen Uh, vector and we can export that energy directly. And then the final route is these value-added products where we do things like aluminium or steel where we use that renewable electricity to take an an ore product and convert it into a a high embedded energy value um, final product like um, steel or aluminium. So you mentioned that you try and transport this with very little loss, but I'm sure that transporting energy between countries is quite a big feat. How much electricity loss do you think will happen? Um, and th- this is the special thing about that really high voltage. So China has developed high voltage DC cables, which are 3,000 kilometres long um, and transfer about a third of Australia's peak electricity use with losses of less than 10%. Um, this is a technology that has really enabled us to be able to move electricity around the world. Um, and so the sort of distances we're talking about are less than that. For Australia to go to Indonesia and Singapore is less than 3,000 kilometres. So the scale of the losses are not really what's going to be the scary part. It's really around how does the entire economics look and how does it compare to the, getting that energy from alternate sources. Matt, I'll start with you, but i ask it of all three of you. I mean, we hear a lot in this debate about... Um, reliability, uh, cleanliness and cheapness of renewable energy. Uh, is that true? Is that what's going to happen? Um, it's, it's certainly what we believe and, and the modelling work that we've done suggests that this is, is the case. So we did a fairly major study 12 months ago looking at how could we put wind and PV as the dominant contributors to um, Australia's electricity grid and grow from our current 20% target through to entire network being from a renewable electricity And there are additional costs, so we need to be able to move the electricity long distance, so there's extra transmission costs, and there's extra storage costs. We need to be able to store energy for times where we have a shortage in the system, when the sun isn't shining and the wind isn't blowing. But those additional costs were quite small. It was only a couple of cents a kilowatt hour, so 10% of your residential bill, to be able to take our renewable wind and PV and turn it into a reliable um, energy source. In Asian countries, the challenge is really on the reliability side now. I mean, the cleanliness is there and the costs are coming down, but the reliability is a challenge. Many of the utilities are not very fluent in managing intermittent solar and wind resources, and, and they're still learning the experiences on doing this. I think there's a lot of interesting work in developing market mechanisms. So, for example, increased use of real-time markets and also markets for auxiliary services in the electricity sector. 
because uh, currently, currently the, the systems that are used for managing intermittent renewables are, are not quite there. For example, some wind projects, the wind is curtailed, so the wind is not used as much as it would have been used in, if it was in Australia or in South Australia, for example, because the utility is worried about, how, about uh, there being too much of the, the intermittent wind coming into the grid. So I think on the reliability side, there's lots of interesting work to be done. And moving on a bit, and let's say you've got your renewable energy export market up and running, what's the impact on the Australian economy? Well, there are big opportunities here. So uh, there, there could be billions of export dollars of exports. Employment? In, in these sectors and, and jobs as well. So uh, in particular, our project has been focused on northwest Australia and there are lots of job opportunities in the Pilbara region there for local communities in, in this sector. Uh, it's, it's true that, the, that for the coal sector in the long run, this, this won't be fantastic for jobs in that sector, but you know the coal sector is not a large employer in Australia anyway. There are only 50,000, approximately 50,000 people working in the coal mining sector. Uh, so, yeah, I think in terms of dollars, certainly there, there are lots of opportunities in this sector. Um, so Australia is an export superpower in terms of energy. There's, there's no question. It's, it's, we export five times the amount of energy that we currently um, consume within our borders. Um, so there is going to be a need to change from what is very much a fossil fuel driven to a renewable um, opportunity. But you can see that the scale of the opportunity is such that it can well and truly exceed what we're doing today. Um, we have the ability to generate vastly more um, renewable energy in the northwest of Australia than the entire world needs. So the scale of the resource is there. The challenge is can we deliver that efficiently and effectively so that we can benefit from it? Emma, can we bring the communities along with us? Well, so I, I would like to add that mining is increasingly incredibly mechanised. I mean, we have mines that run essentially with at most one person. So that technological process is happening anyway. The jobs are disappearing anyway in these sectors due to technological processes progress. So I think going forward, there's going to be less and less jobs to lose by shifting to this new sector, which I believe some Crawford colleagues were actually showing, um, or, or was it Matt, uh, Andrew Blakers, um, showing there's actually more jobs, especially during the growth period for the renewables industry. Um, so there will be a net gain in in jobs. And if I can go back to a previous question on the cleanliness and reliability, as far as I understand, one of the sort of big drivers might be for the uptake of renewables in our neighbouring countries is actually the air pollution associated with the fossil fuel um, consumption. And there is major health implications worth trillions of dollars from this um, air quality problems. And as you're getting um, more and more development leading to more and more pollution, but you're also getting higher and higher incomes and um, whether you believe environmental Kuznets curves or not, there is certainly a very strong empirical relationship between incomes and improving um, certain pollutants. And air quality is always the first to turn. It is always a priority um, for people because they see their own lives and those of their children being shortened. So there's lots of huge implications for this zero carbon energy future and for your project. And there's lots of different factors and segments that are all going into this. And I'd love to talk about this for a little bit longer. But unfortunately, we are rapidly running out of time. But just as a real quick final question to all of you, how do you think the world and how do you think the Asia Pacific region will receive and how do you think they will take on board this zero carbon energy future that you're proposing? Um, so, so I think one of the aspects I'll come back to is what Emma said previously, that the, the fact that 
um, countries like India and China can see their pollution makes a much stronger driver for change. Um, you can see that people are concerned about what they can see. And you compare that to Australia where you look outside and what's the problem? Um, and so I, I think we're going to see a pull from Asia simply because they see the environmental health benefits um, from this change rather than really thinking about uh, global warming. I would say for some of our neighbours, the interest in working with Australia is that we are, um, I guess, an alternative to China so that the entire region doesn't end up being entirely dependent on China and handing it even more political power. And Paul, any last words? I think there's a lot of momentum behind zero carbon energy. So for example, in the car sector, the boards of car companies are talking about electric vehicles and alternative fuel vehicles. They're not talking about diesel and gas vehicles We're looking forward. So I think there's a, a lot of potential there and the countries in the region are keen to move for, for various reasons, including the local pollution. There are lots of opportunities for Australia. Well, thank you, Emma, Paul and Matt for joining me and Bob today. Um, I really enjoyed this conversation and I wish you all the best with your project. And I do too. It was great fun. Thank you. Thanks very much. Yeah, thanks. Thank you both. Make sure you stick around. Bob and I will be talking about any of your comments and we'll discuss our previous articles on Policy Forum. Welcome back. After that fascinating discussion about zero carbon energy and the future of renewable energy. Um, Bob, what did you think about that? Absolutely discussion? fascinating discussion. It really was. So many new things happening out there that could be of great benefit to Australia and to the world. Fascinated by Emma's comment about how she was feeling a little bit depressed about Australia's climate and energy policies and having worked with this challenge team now feels a lot more positive what the future holds. And also uh, Matt's comment about Australia's future potential as the world's leading energy supplier. Just in the northwest of Australia alone, the resources we have there could, could meet the whole world's demand, which is kind of a fascinating statistic. Yeah, they don't call it grand challenges for nothing. These are just some huge ideas and they're going to take a bit of time to put into place. And if you wanted to find out more about their project and about the grand challenges scheme in general, we'll leave a link to it in the show notes. So if you're interested in what was being discussed today and you wanted to learn about it and become one of these amazing researchers, we have a new degree specialisation here at Crawford. It's called the Master of Public Policy in Environment Policy. And this specialisation is designed to prepare professionals for environmental roles in government, business and the community sector. So head to crawford.anu.edu to find out more about this program and any of our other programs. So now Bob and I will just talk about some of our previous articles on Policy Forum. So this article from Peter Drahos titled, Does it really matter if Trump pulls the US out of the World Trade Organization? And in his article, Peter argues that the US has a long history of using trade coercion to enforce its intellectual property agenda. The US is withdrawing from the WTO, and this could give the world a chance to focus on terms of trade that favor people over profit. So there was a comment from Michael, and Michael said, with Trump's America pulling out of global institutions, this is only leaving room for China to come in and fill the vacuum. Will we be able to prioritise people over profit if we live in a Chinese-led global trading system? Unlikely. What are your thoughts on that, Bob? Yeah, fascinating stuff, this. Uh, taking um, Peter's point first about the US withdrawing from the uh, WTO and the world trade system, does it matter? Yes, it matters hugely. 
It's a very negative step. The United States was one of the foundation members of the forerunners to the WTO, and really its lack of leadership and thought about what is going to happen to the WTO and what might replace it is going to be sadly missing in the world. Uh, and from Michael's comments, uh, this kind of leaves room only for China to come in and fill the vacuum. Let's remember here that um, China is a beneficiary of the WTO. China's significant world uh, economic growth and development was caused in part by its ability to meet WTO standards in international trade and commerce. Huge benefit to China. One further point there, Maya, would be that China, of course, had to accept the rules-based system, as we call it, uh, without having much say in it. These days, China is looking, I think, to evolve new standards and new institutional structures, like the Belt and Road Initiative, to have a larger say in how the world's economy is run. So that's the world we're going to have to live in, and let's hope that people do benefit from all of this. Do you think this step is just another part of the trade war between the US and China? Um, I think it is certainly that, but I think it's more deeply seated than that. And I think Trump, as president, really has a very negative view of international trade and commerce. He has the mercantilist view of the world. And I think it is really very much out of step with what most other countries are doing. It's a really interesting article. So I suggest you give it a read. We'll leave a link to it in the show notes. Now, on the 22nd of September, it was World Car Free Day. And on it, we shared an article by Sing Fat Chu, which was actually from last year. And there was a comment on Facebook by Matthew Musket. And Matthew says, it's a unique position that isn't applicable to the rest of the world. They're always going to beat that drum. If you have a tiny country with a large relative and rich population, then yes, with good planning, you can achieve what Singapore is achieving. A cool read, but always just going to be that. What do you think about world car-free I think it's good to have a world car-free day or more. I think the balance between cars and uh, public transport is a debate that really matters and we're needing to have it again in Australia. Point to bear in mind about Singapore, it's a very talented country. It works hard. It's got very disciplined people and policies. They work hard to put their policies in place. But let's bear in mind it is a very small country and so therefore the high density that you can achieve there allows you to do these sorts of policies. We, for better or worse, live in a large federation. We have to work with the best we can. So I think some good fair comments in all of that. Yeah, I think what Singapore is doing is really great. But I think it is paving the world for other countries to follow its footsteps. So we recently published an article from Anthony Bergen called Planning for the Worst, Counterterrorism Strategy, A Smart Step Forward in Assuring Public Safety. And in this article, Bergen talks about Victoria's new counterterrorism strategy, which is putting the focus on early prevention in fighting terrorism. And we had a great comment from Courtney, and Courtney says, great to hear Victoria has a new strategy to fight terrorism, but are we really resigning ourselves that the shadow of potential terrorist attacks will always hang over Australian citizens? Australian cities. Is there really no way to eradicate the problem? Well, Ma, yes, uh, interesting comment, that one. And like um, Courtney says, well done, Victoria, for putting out a new counterterrorism strategy. Uh, I think the key word here is, are we really resigning ourselves that uh, Courtney says? No, I don't think we are resigning ourselves. Terrorism has been around the world for a long, long time, at least over 200 years, as we know it in its modern forms. Think of the anarchist movement in the late 1800s in Europe. 
But uh, we have to try and get ahead of the curve. We have to certainly work hard at de-radicalising people within Australia who are tempted to go down the terrorist route. We have to be quite fierce in the links with overseas terrorist organisations. I think we have been. I think our uh, intelligence professionals, police, military uh, and others work very hard in this space, particularly uh, state police forces who actually work with disadvantaged communities where uh, this radicalisation takes place. So uh, it's a hard game, this one. No, I don't think we are resigning ourselves to it. Yeah, I think the Victorian police forces are doing a great job in trying to prevent terrorism before it occurs so that we can actually try and eradicate the problem, as Courtney says. So that was just a few of our comments from our Policy Forum articles. And as always, we are keen to hear your thoughts on our articles and, of course, on our podcasts. So reach out to us on social media. Our Twitter is Apps Policy Forum, or our Facebook page is Asia and the Pacific Policy Society, or of course, you can always email us. Our email is podcast at policyforum.net. So we'll be back next week with a podcast on industry engagement and science. Don't forget that on Mondays, the brief podcast comes out. And we also have a fortnightly national security podcast. So give those a listen if you haven't already and let us know what you think. Thank you for joining me, Bob. Great pleasure as always, Maya. And that's all from us. We'll see you next time. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.